That is a tricky passage uh, in Genesis 19, and I think there's a temptation as Christians to look at the really nice passages, spend all of our time there, and ignore the difficult ones. And there's, we want to have our Bible studies and be encouraged and feel warm about God's love, but there's a verse in the Bible that says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness. And if we want to believe that verse, we have to believe that in Genesis 19, there is something useful for our faith that will help us follow God and be his agents in this world. Father God, again, I pray for myself. Um, I speak very nervously with fear and trembling. Sure that I'm relying on your words. And God, I just pray that you'd open all of our hearts to hear. Uh, May what is from you stick. May what is not from you fade away quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. So why did God destroy Sodom is one of the questions I wanted to deal with straight away. Because if you ask most Christians, they'll probably give you an answer relating to sin. Um, And if you ask most people who aren't Christians, they'll probably give you an answer relating to sin as well. Ezekiel 16 actually gives us an answer for why it was destroyed, and it wasn't in our readings. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty. Pride. Sodom believed that they could go through life and in all their activities without God. They believed that they could go things and do things their own way and it would be better than by going God's way. This is pride. It's amazing reading that list in Ezekiel and thinking, oh, that pretty much describes me and a lot of the people around me, pride, excess of food. How much food am I throwing away? How, how much am I actually taking care of the needy? There is pride in my heart. Maybe this sin is actually not just describing Sodom, but maybe it's describing me as well as a human being. And I think the biggest problem facing humanity is God's wrath against sin. It's not the war going on in Ukraine. It's not COVID. It's not a cost of living crisis. It's not cancer. It's not some of the detestable things we read about in this story. It's God's wrath against humanity because of their sin and their rebellion against God's. In Isaiah, it says, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. In Romans 3, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty of the the sins of Sodom. We might think, oh, we're a little bit neater and tidier. We've not gone as far as they've gone. But actually, in our hearts, we hold that pride, thinking that our way is better than God's way. 
and sin results in death. It results in God's wrath. We know this from Adam and Eve. God said, if you eat off the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Romans 6 says, the wages of sin is death. When we sin and we disobey God, what we earn for ourselves is punishment. The Bible talks about in Revelation a burning sulfur and fiery lake that people will be thrown into who don't believe in Jesus because of their sin. Matthew 25 talks about eternal punishment. In many ways, the wrath that was put on Sodom is very minor compared to what's described about God's wrath. I don't think we like talking about it. C.S. Lewis um, said if there was one doctrine he could erase from the Christianity, Christian faith, it would be hell. He said, if I could just take any part, he said, I'd even pay to get it removed because it's so, uh, so uncomfortable, so difficult. There was a book I was reading on Friday night. Oddly enough, it wasn't for this, but there was a paragraph. It said, the grace and love of God are pleasant subjects. And they are no more beautifully demonstrated than our Lord Jesus. Yet in his earthly ministry, he made more references to hell and judgment than he did to heaven. For us to ignore this and to skirt around the issue of God's wrath is not doing justice to what Jesus spoke about. But there is good news. There is very good news. We're all under God's wrath because of our sin. But Jesus has come into this world. We know that first, John 3.16. We've all probably all got it memorized. God so loved the world that he sent his son, Jesus, so that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. In that Romans one, it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. There is good news. So just like the angels came into Lot City, into Sodom, and said, there's a way out. You need to get out now. So Jesus has said, there's a way out of God's wrath. You can get out. Get out now. If we dismiss the doctrine of hell and God's wrath, we say that there was no need for Jesus to die. There was no need. Why would he go to the cross if there was no wrath for our sin. But there is good news. So do we want to call on the name of Jesus? Do we want to accept his offer to take on the full measure of God's wrath on our behalf? Or do we, like Lot's sons-in-law, think he's joking? It's only a joke, God's wrath isn't coming. God only loves, he never hurts, he never punishes sin. It's only a joke. How could God be a, a, a loving God if he punishes sin? Do we want to call on the name of Jesus to be saved? If you have called on the name of Jesus to be saved and you are in and you have escaped Sodom and Jesus has rescued you from God's wrath. There's a next step for us, just like there was for Lot. When Lot was told the city's going down, there was a next step. In verse uh, 
12, it says, then the men said, the angels said to Lot, have you anyone else in this city? Is there anyone else you care about? Is there anyone else in Sodom who's going to be destroyed unless you get them out? Do you have sons-in-laws? Do you have daughters? Do you have sons? Do you have anyone you care about that you want to get them out? Get them out. I wonder if we could think about asking ourselves that question. Is there anyone else that we know in our lives right now who is under God's wrath, who is on their way to hell because they've not called on the name of Jesus? Maybe if we think about it in concentric circles, our family, do our parents know Jesus? Do our siblings know Jesus? Do our sons and daughters know Jesus? And if they don't, think of their name, pray for them, talk to them, tell them, let them know that there is a way out. Then maybe we go out to the next concentric circle, my friends and colleagues at work, which of them know about Jesus? Do they need to know? Have they called on him? This isn't so we can proof against people and go, oh, you're in, you're out, you're in. That's not our job. Our job is to tell them that there is a way out of Sodom. There is a way out of God's wrath. And then those we pass in our day-to-day life when we're in the queue at the, in Audi, do these people know about Jesus? Do we, have, do we have eyes to see and to love for these people that they, unless they call on the name of Jesus, unless they believe in him and accept his offer to take the full wrath of God upon himself, do they need to know as well? How can I best communicate that to them? Is that by bringing my Bible to Audi and going, by the way, have you read this? Is that loving them, being patient with them, forgiving people when they've hurt us? Is it living out the gospel in our everyday life? Again, it's not our job to save people. It's not our job. It's not our responsibility to make people get into heaven. We can't do that. Salvation belongs to the Lord, not to us. No matter how much I preach to my brother and tell him all the facts about God, I can't force him to believe. I can't force him to call on Jesus. I can't force him to accept that offer of good news. But I can play my part. I can pray. That, that passage in Romans 10 Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call unless they've heard? And how can they hear unless someone tells them? And how can someone tell them unless they're, pre- they're sent to preach it? We may not have the gift of preaching, but we can all communicate the gospel with our lives. We can all make sure that those we care about in the city know this good news. I wonder if this is part of the reason why Paul says, work out your faith with fear and trembling, because souls are at stake. There are people we know, there are people we love and we care about who are currently in Sodom and need to know the good news. How are we doing? Am I I doing, are we following along? 
Can I go on for a bit longer and expand and give you some warnings about this? Um, because, okay, we have the choice. Maybe you've not made that choice. Do we call on the name of Jesus and are saved and get out of Sodom? That's wonderful. If that's where you're at today, that's great. Sit with that. Maybe you're, you've, you've escaped Sodom and you're on your way out and it's all sunshine and roses and you're like, yes, this is great news. And you're jumping around in your living room going, yes, I'm saved. And now you want to tell people about it. And if you want to tell people about it, I want to kind of give you some heads up because this is a war we're in. The Bible talks about us being in a spiritual war and there is opposition to us doing this. So I want to talk about two elements of opposition from this passage that Lot experiences when he welcomes the angels into his life and how we can best respond to them. So the first one is the external opposition. So when he tells his sons-in-law, they laugh at him, they oh, you're joking. When he has the guests around his house, it says the large crowd surround. It says everyone in the city, all the men in the city, young and old, all of them outside his house, threatening to harm him and those of his guests. There's opposition when we follow Jesus. Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. So how do we respond to this external opposition when we've decided to follow Jesus, when we've decided to talk about him and share him with those we care about, those we pass in everyday life? How do we prepare for that opposition? Because in this passage, when Lot faces the opposition and the, the gang of people around his house, I relate to it because I'm on a ground floor apartment. And if the city of Birmingham got round my, I would be very scared. We, we make sure the windows are locked at night just because we don't want anyone to rob us, let alone making active threats. We're outside, we're coming in. Lot doesn't respond well in this situation. He acts in self-preservation. He acts and he puts others in the firing line. And I think there's a part of him that's trying to protect God and trying to honor God. Oh, don't hurt these angels. And sometimes often when we're trying to protect our faith and try and keep our faith honored, we actually act in sin. I think there's something in that. But when we face external opposition, we have the choice. Do we respond in sin? Do we choose to sin so that good may come? No. Or do we respond in faith? Paul and Silas were two apostles in the New Testament. And it says one day they were going out to prayer uh, and they encountered someone and they ended up getting arrested and they got in trouble and they were put in prison. And it says in the middle of the night, rather than put each other in the firing line and say, oh, it's his fault. Oh, no, it's his fault. He was the one who shouted at the woman. Rather, it says they were found praying and singing hymns to God. When we face external opposition, do we respond in sin or do we respond in faith? How do we get faith? How do we grow in faith so that we can respond better to sin, uh, to, to trials and external pressures? This Romans passage has the answer. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. If you want to brace yourself for the external opposition in this world, read your Bible. It's not a legalism thing. It's not a get into heaven. If you don't read your Bible, God doesn't love you anymore, or you're going to impress God if you've read it through 50 times before you die. It's a 
It's a protection. God, prepare me. The armor of God in Ephesians 6 says that this is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This is like a sword that we can use to, to protect ourselves, to proclaim this good news, to build up faith inside of us so that when the trials come, we can go, actually, no, I know that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him. I know that Jesus said, in this life, you will have trials, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's not respond to external pressures, whether it's the cost of living crisis, whether it's an illness, whether it's anything that's trying to detract from our living out this gospel in real life every day and explaining it to people who don't yet know it. Let's not get distracted by those pressures, but let's turn in faith to a God who is able to deliver us. And what happens with Lot, even though he responded badly to the threat, it says the angels pulled him inside and rescued him. Our God is mighty to save, not just from sin, but from the world and from evil forces and from the own sin in our own, our own hearts. Secondly, there's internal opposition to when we follow Jesus. There's temptations and, uh, and sins that we're dealing with in our own lives. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. He says, I, I know what I want to do, but I don't do it. And the things I know I should do, I don't do. And Lot has this as well. At the very end of the chapter, it says he's there in the caves. He's fled from Sodom. Everything's hunky-dory. He's no longer having to live on guard, sit at the gate in the evening of Sodom when everyone else is partying and having their sinful activities. He's staying separate in the hills. He's in the comfort, but he doesn't have children. And his two daughters say, no, we need to get children for Lot. So what we're going to do is we're going to get him drunk and sleep with him. And Lot goes for this. There is opposition that comes internally, even though we've accepted Jesus into our hearts. In Ephesians 5, it says, the days are evil, therefore do not get drunk with wine. A good way to guard against internal sin in our lives is let's not give in to drunkenness and alcohol. I don't know how much of a problem that is in our church. Um, but when we drink excessive alcohol, we become much more prone to making mistakes. We need to be aware, like Galatians says, when you tell people the good news and snatch them from the fire, beware that you don't also fall into the temptation. It says restore them gently, but be careful that you also are not tempted. And let's be aware of being too comfortable and secure. Just like that Ezekiel passage said, they, were, they had fullness of food and excessive prosperity. And just like Lot, he's no longer living in Sodom. He's in the comfort of, of the hills. And then he turns to sin. But I did a bit of homework. And one of his children who was born from that situation, so he... He slept with his daughters drunk, and it was horrible and disgusting. And that's what sin is, disgusting, and that's why God's so angry with it. 
But one of his children is called Moab, one of the, the children from that relationship. And the Moab becomes the father of the Moabites. And out of the Moabites comes this little girl called Ruth, who is very significant. And there's a whole book in the Bible written about Ruth, because from Ruth descends David, King David, and from David comes Jesus. And so even though we sin as Christians, we can know that God is working all things together. He turns our worst mistakes. Paul says he chose me the worst of sinners to demonstrate his grace. He takes the mistake that Lot has when he fell externally to, to the, when he fell to the external pressure. He takes the, the failings of Lot when he uh, responded badly to the internal pressure and he weaves a tapestry of grace for the salvation of humanity from it. God takes our worst failings and turns them into his glorious display of grace. God can rescue us from Sodom, and he can rescue those we care about. That's all I have. Father God, please can you be with us? Lord, if there are people here who have not called on the name of Jesus, who have not accepted him, Lord, would you be challenging their hearts today to respond to that? Lord, for those of us who have, I pray that you give us the courage, the boldness to go out and proclaim this good news to those we care about, whether those close to us or those we barely know in passing. Help us to be disciplined and saturated in the word of God so that we can stand up against the, the storms and the trials that the enemy throws at us and help us to be on guard against besetting sins in our own lives and to trust for your grace to cover our, our sins and our failings. Lord, will we not be shy in proclaiming this good news? Amen.